Good morning, good evening, good night, wherever, however, and whenever you're listening. Welcome to another episode of The Melanie Report. I'm your host, Marquise Lupton, and say it with me, y'all. We got another dope show for you today. It is episode 50. I cannot believe it. I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and rocking out with your boy every week, ever since September when we debuted this program and i am so excited and i'm just so elated to be at this episode 50 this is the end of season one and i mean we had some great 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 conversations on i mean we talked about how cannabis affects laws against black people uh we talked about the melanated bar who looks to raise the bar with their melanated skincare and amassed one million dollars amazing we also talked about the tumultuous history of african americans and hollywood and do you remember the dmv's media prints conversation that we had with him or how about the rise of the black woman entrepreneur that was actually one of my favorite ones one of my also favorite ones was speaking with a newsmaker uh, author and musician Haywood Donerson that was a good one and the stigma of black men and mental health monologue and panel that was good too we cannot forget about the discussion on black sororities and black fraternities that was a good one with the ladies of the divine nine and the homie Shelby Warmly, she came through talking to us about changing careers and taking that leap. I mean, we had so many great interviews. We had so many people bless us with their perspective on life, their perspective on their careers, and just giving us the game on what they feel as though works best for them to be successful, like a Joshua Leonard when he spoke about the lack of diversity in animation, and you can tell that he was very passionate about that. Or how about the conversation back in October that I had with John Mina, who looked to balance the scales of justice and him running for district judge in his district. I, I, I mean, we talked about collard greens. Uh, we had a conversation with the king. We had a conversation with the king prolific Hickman about how he got started. We had a deep, deep, deep conversation talking about the uh, prison to pipeline uh, system, the school to prison pipeline system. Um, and, and also uh, one of the most heartfelt interviews with Ethan A. Poetic, where doctors gave him a 1% chance of living. And folks, this now is episode 50, where we will be doing a deep dive into the rich history of Dr. MLK. Now, we all heard the rumors and, and everything, and this episode of the melanin report we peel back those rumors actually we get rid of those rumors and get to the truth of who mlk was one of them being that he actually wanted to retire from uh from from being a uh a a civil rights fighter and wanted to retire and teach 
at the University of Boston. So, I mean, we get into a whole lot of great details with Dr. Nathaniel Gadsden. I was honored to have him on the Melanin Report and give me this game on everything I knew existed, everything I didn't know existed, and everything I wanted to know about Dr. MLK Jr. Now, this is episode 50, and if you haven't checked out any of the other 49 episodes, then friend, I implore you to take some time out this month and catch up on everything Melanin Report. Again, this is episode 50, and I want to thank you, the listener, for joining me on this season one journey. Now, let's get to our discussion. First question here, uh, what role did Martin Luther King Jr. play in the civil rights movement? Well, you know, most people think of Dr. King as being the absolute leader of that movement. You know, they think of him having been not only the voice, but the person that most people were drawn to, especially in the early years. Uh, Dr. King, of course, entered into the movement when he was only 26 years old. Mm. Uh, he was thrust into the movement by way of, uh, you know, proxy, so to speak, because he was the new kid in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, 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 a prolific voice, of course, in the he had a tremendous reasoning power. But remember, he's only 26 years old. Yeah. He was finishing up his doctorate degree at Boston University. And so there were ministers there who had been there for a long time in that particular area that he was, you know, in. And uh, they were not burned out, but they were, you know, they were at odds as to which way to go. Mm. So to have a, a new voice in town, they found it easier to rally behind this young man who was brilliant, obviously, but also... He was new, okay, <laughs> and they, he didn't have all that baggage and everything that some of the other ones carried. I also remember that Dr. King was was following a gentleman who doesn't get enough credit in history, and I'm just drawing a blank on his name right now, and actually did a movie about his life. This gentleman was a fiery uh, preacher uh, mm. who was, uh, you know, confronting, uh, you know, the isms of, of the time, racism and, and everything else, and especially as it related to African-American people. He was extremely active as he, he was... Uh, he was confrontational. So when the congregation hired Dr. King, they made it very clear to him they did not want him to be involved in the uh, civil rights movement. They oh, didn't wow. want him to be out there as a voice. And so he was kind of going against the grain. So he actually had some opposition within his congregation about being elected to this newly formed thing called the Student, uh, you know, the uh, SCLC, Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And so uh, he took a gamble because, you know, again, he was relatively new. Uh, and then to call for a bus boycott and to be leading that, along with, uh, you know, the NOACP and, of course, Rosa Parks being at the center of that, um, there was a lot of stake, mm. uh, you know. So Dr. King stepped in with a particular philosophy of nonviolence. He believed that, you know, you had to confront evil. At the same time, you couldn't do evil for evil. Mm. So this new philosophy that he brought on board, and remember that a lot of people don't even know that Dr. King had uh, uh, six principles that led and guided him through his entire uh, civil rights, uh, you know, activism. And then he developed six steps and he chronicled those things in his book called uh, Stride Towards Freedom. Mm. And uh, he had studied, you know, of course, he was a Christian uh, pastor. So he already knew about love and, and nonviolence and all that. But then he began to put a framework uh, to it based around his uh, understanding what the civil rights uh, movement of the South needed. 
and the South was a vicious place. Uh, you know, don't let people fool you. <laughs> you know, it was a very vicious place for African American people. If you stepped out of line, as we know from Emmett Till and mm. so many other examples, uh, the countless names of, of people who were murdered, uh, Serena Goodman and Cheney along the way, and so many others. So Dr. King knew fully what he was stepping into. He was no uh, shrinking violent, but he was also surprised at the um, at the level of anger, uh, you know, on, and, and, and also, you know, where people were caught up in what to do. They were so afraid of what to do because they could lose jobs, they could lose their life. Uh, you know, these uh, police officers, police force was stacked against them. The politicians were stacked against them. There was a lot going on. So, again, most people in the early days of Dr. King's, uh, you know, leadership saw him as the absolute leader. Why? Because he had the prolific voice. He was a fresh new voice. And then he created a movement. By the way, the boycott, uh, you know, there against uh, for the bus, you know, uh, system uh, lasted for over a year and what about a year and a month or something like that. Wow. Uh, so it wasn't something that just happened very quickly. But it wasn't the only boycott that was happening around the country. So really? one of the things that we know about history is uh, history is often told by those who tell it. History is understood by a, a particular perspective. So. Uh, you know, I've discovered in the last 20 years, in fact, uh, a lot that was happening in this country uh, that, you know, oftentimes we don't hear anything about. And there were people who were lifting up Dr. King's name, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was Oklahoma City had the first big set-ins. But most people think it was Greensboro, South Carolina, or North Carolina, one or two of those. But anyhow, no, those were the most famous because of the college students who were crowned. But there were set-ins taking place all over the place. In fact, uh, in Oklahoma City in 1958, uh, there were people lifting up Dr. King's name. Oh. And only until recently did we hear about these set-ins that took place in Oklahoma City. So I say all that just to simply say it to your question. Uh, Dr. King was seen as, quote-unquote, the leader, the voice. And one of the reasons that that happened is because of the work of John H. Johnson, who had Ebony Magazine. And then there were others who stepped up. The black press was huge back then. Mm -hmm. uh, and the black press began to be muted. So he, his name was lifted up constantly, uh, being... A, you know, in the forefront of, but there were many people. We had a lot of lieutenants that worked with him, you know, uh, Abernathy and, and Andrew Young and, you know, Jesse Jackson and so many others, uh, you know, that too many to mention. Women as well, by the way, that's another thing about the movement. We often talk about it from a male perspective, but there were a lot of women who were also involved in the movement who were true leaders, uh, you know, Daisy Bates and, and so many others uh, that don't get mentioned enough in our history. So long Long answer to your question. <laughs> oh, that's all right. Um, and and I, I'm actually glad that you brought up uh, the the black press um, because that was going to be um, a, a part of uh, my my packers of questions. So I'll just ask it right now. Um, what role did the black press play in to spread the word of Dr. King and to really spread his his message? Because you know there wasn't. Twitter back then, you know, you weren't emailing people, you know, there weren't cell phones. So what role did this black press, the, did the black press play in the uh, civil rights movement and um, spreading this message that Dr. King had? Well, the black press, uh, you know, again, was huge uh, back then, uh, not as big as it should have been, but it was big. And then, you know, it, it, it worked. The paper that gets a lot of press, a lot of um, coverage of, around the civil rights movement was the Chicago Defender. Hmm. And uh, hats off to the uh, the uh, 
Pullman car porters, mostly uh, black porters who worked on the trains, they would get the papers and then they would distribute those papers as they went across country. They oh. knew how to drop those papers off and they had to kind of do it in a very secret ways, secretive way. Uh, so, you know, a lot of whites just kind of turned their heads, people that were in charge because they didn't think much of it. They didn't know what was really happening. But that was the way that a lot of information got spread hmm. through the black press because of the Chicago Defender. You had uh, in New York, the uh, New York Amsterdam News in Philadelphia, you had the Philadelphia Tribune, uh, you had the American, uh, Afro-American out of Washington, D.C. But all throughout the country, there were all these newspapers who were uh, able to tell the story. There's the National Newspapers Association, quite frankly, that still exists, and that is the national arm of the black newspapers in this country. Uh, I used to write a, a column for uh, the black newspapers just by simply writing it and sending it out called Consider This, and I would always pick up my papers to see who picked it up and never worried about trying to get paid or anything. I just wanted my voice to be heard. Mm -hmm. And I remember one day here in Harrisburg, uh, I went down to the store that I usually got my papers from, and they weren't there. And I was like, oh, what happened? And the guy said, well, no one was buying them. I said, what do you mean no one was buying them? I was buying them. He said, yeah, but you're probably the only one. So one of the things that happened was that as integration began to take place, we were really into integration. That was part of the movement around uh, the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. why we could not have access to everything that everyone else had, why we had to go in the back of the door and ride in the back of the bus and all that kind of stuff. So the overemphasis of integrating into society, uh, you know, became both a good thing and problematic at the same time, which is mm -hmm. really interesting. Because think about it, the black press was playing a critical role. Uh, but then as we begin to demand for more inclusion in the mainstream, uh, some of our institutions begin to suffer. Mm. And people saw them as lesser than. So back in the day, really a lot of the stories that were written and a lot of things that we talked about never appeared in the uh, mainstream press unless it was just some kind of little hiccup or byline here or there. But the black press was on it. They were really on it. And we had some outstanding uh, photographers like Amante Sleep, who uh, was a photographer for uh, Ebony Magazine and many of the black newspapers. He was an award-winning photographer. Then you have writers, uh, you know, just going down the line with some of those persons out of Philadelphia even. I got a chance to meet a few of them. Mm. Uh, you know, they were iconic uh, people who were telling our story when no one else would. Uh, and they were telling the backstory. They weren't just telling the surface story. Mm -hmm. They actually did the research to tell the story. That's why it's so good right now when I think it's on Netflix. Uh, it could be on one of those other streaming stations, but they have a, a movie out about uh, Baynard uh, Rustin. Yep, yep, that's Baynard on Netflix. Rustin. And did you see that? That, that was really well done. Yes, yes, and, indeed. And uh, I'm sure that, you know, people fact check all that stuff. But uh, it's, you know, there's a lot of good storytelling out there now that are being dramatized movie-wise and, and these stories that are telling us a lot about a history we didn't know, thanks to people like Ava DuVernay and, you know, Oprah Winfrey and others who are taking... You know, Tyler Perry even, Tyler Perry has done some uh, outstanding things, even outside of all of the comedy and stuff he does. He's, you know, all of them are storytellers. Mm -hmm. and so uh, our real story still has, has just surfaced. We still have yet to be, I hope somebody one day comes out and talks about the uh, the power of the black press and also not its demise, it's gone down and, you know, but it's not dead. That's the good news about it. Mm -hmm. But uh, still, if you, if you pick up black newspapers, you'll expect to see stories that you would not otherwise see uh, in the mainstream. Question here. Uh, can you discuss uh, Dr. King's involvement um, in the Selma to Montgomery marches? You know, there was um, a major movement uh, to address voter rights, 
you know, just human rights, that, if you will. And uh, part of what happened is that oftentimes the story is told only from the perspective of Dr. King's involvement. Oftentimes, some of those marches took place when Dr. King was not able to march, quite frankly. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, he was either jailed or, uh, you know, he was in, in peril or he was in some other part of the country. So a lot of movements took place, a lot of marches took place. But oftentimes, uh, you know, of course, when he was there, the cameras were there. But oftentimes those marches were organized by some of his lieutenants. Mm. And, uh, but they still had the same, uh, you know, power, the same uh, direction, purpose, you know, attached to it. Uh, there's a gentleman here in Harrisburg who was uh, a great photographer. And uh, I didn't know that he had such a, an expansive uh, collection. And one day he showed me some pictures of Jesse Jackson and some others down in Florida leading a massive march. And then it was, it was another place in his name. And like, wow. So quite frankly, uh, a lot of what took place when Dr. King was uh, marching is marching for rights, especially for, uh, you know, the, the right to vote. Because he understood that the right to vote had power. In other words, we, if we couldn't get elected officials in there who had that trickle-down power, they were the ones that, you know, elected the or, or appointed the chief of police. Mm -hmm. the chief of police, of course, appointed and, and was able to hire people that, you know, would do his bidding, so to speak, back in the day. Uh, There's a gentleman here in Harrisburg who wrote a fantastic novel. And I said to myself, oh, man, this is really good. He said, well, a lot of this is based on my life. He said, this is how I grew up. And so he was telling the stories wow. about how these police officers were just taking people out, man. I mean, taking them out, literally. And folks were in the town, uh, that southern town they grew up in, was so afraid to speak up. So it wasn't any surprise to him that when they, uh, you know, trudged the uh, Tallahatchie River, looking for Swerner Goodman and Cheney, they found all these other bodies. Mm. And it was like, where did these people come from? Well, it came from the community, came from the neighborhood. So Dr. King understood not only the importance for uh, you know, the voter rights mm -hmm. uh, for people to have access to uh, public transportation and public, uh, you know, facilities uh, for people to be simply treated as human beings. Uh, that's what those those marches all about. So it was cloaked in, you know, voter rights, but it had a lot longer and bigger expanse than just that. Mm -hmm. And uh, those persons who lived it uh, understood it. And uh, so that's what Dr. King, that's why he put it on the line. He also understood, though, that you know, violence begets violence. So mm -hmm. he was so determined, uh, you know, to uh, to uh, help foster that movement called nonviolence. That's why you had the uh, the Highlander School um, for uh, Nonviolent Social Change. And I hope I'm saying the title right. But Highlander was a an organization where a lot of the great minds met, and it, it, it morphed into a civil rights, uh, you know, bastion where people went. Dr. King himself went and taught there. And uh, others went there to learn how to be nonviolent. And so the nonviolent movement wasn't just about people saying, we're not going to do this. They were actually trained to be nonviolent. Rosa Parks did not just sit down on that bus. There were many people sat down before Rosa Parks. Mm. And there was a young lady who I can't even think of her name right now, but I wrote an article about it. But anyhow, she uh, had sat down before Rosa Parks did and was arrested and this and that. But they also said they tried to say that she was pregnant at the time, she was mm. only 15. They tried to taint her and paint her in a, you know, so the question was, would the community get behind her with all these questions? So when, when Rosa Parks came along, who was the secretary of the local NAACP, who was extremely well known in the community and was very sophisticated, when she sat down, that was someone that was like not blemished mm. so they could get behind her. But she was well prepared to do what she did. She was not that tired, she was tired, she was sick and tired of of injustice. That's what she was tired of. Mm. And so when she sat down, she sat down with 
you know, with the vision of a Dr. King and others in mind. She did that on purpose and she did it for a reason. But people, I had a young man say to me in one of the schools, well, she just sat down. She didn't do anything. And he had seen the barbershop movie. <laughs> that was, you know, he was on these young kids who was impressed by that. I said, oh, no, she did a lot more than just that. I said, think about it. I said, what did they do to her? Mm. I said, the thing you never hear about is what happened to Rosa Parks after she was, uh, you know, was arrested. I said, do you know what they did to people back in those jails and stuff? I said, nobody talks about that. Writes about that. By the way, do you know that she had to leave that city? Her husband lost her job. And she, no. you know, of course, lost her job. And they were run out of there. They had to leave the South. She went to Detroit. And, wow. uh, you know, so there were so many things that were happening. So Dr. King was fully aware of all this. So that's why his tactics and what he, he uh, was preaching was so very important because he understood what was at stake. And uh, it was about power. Mm. But it was also about equal rights and human rights. And, uh, you know, people just seeing us in a different light. In fact, us seeing ourselves in a different light. You know, there are a lot of people who were convinced that we shouldn't speak up, speak out. Remember when Dr. King got stabbed, he was stabbed by an older black woman. And mm. they called her deranged. Uh, she, you know, you can say she was deranged, but she was so afraid that a Dr. King's message was just messing it up for the rest of us, you know, so to speak. Mm. And so she, she, as she said, are you, and I forget how she said it. She didn't say Martin Luther King. And after he says, yes, I am, she took that pen and stabbed me right in the chest. Mm. And then he read that famous speech, if I had but sneezed. And a, a young white girl heard the speech and she wrote him a, a letter. And she was just a young little kid in school. And she said, I'm so glad you didn't sneeze. And he, he recited that in one of his sermons. Uh, but that was what he was facing. It wasn't just, you know, the white racism was, was very, uh, you know. But there were a lot of black folks who uh, were afraid. And they were so afraid that they were, you know, they were angry with these leaders speaking out. And that's why I say the pastor before Dr. King, whose church he took over, that brother was, uh, you know, seen as someone powerful, but also someone who was feared mm -hmm. because they thought he was messing it up for everybody. So when Dr. King stepped into that leadership role, started talking about civil rights and equal rights and voting rights, remember a lot of people think also Dr. King was shot and killed literally one year after he made the speech in New York City at the Riverside, uh, you know, I think it was Riverside Baptist Church, I believe it was, and he spoke out against the war. Even his lieutenant said to him, do not do that. And some people even used the phrase, stay in your lane. Mm. You know, Dr. King, now wait a minute, you're a black civil rights leader, what you doing speaking out on this war? That's going against America. And they said that that they think that a year later, by the way, one of the books you have to read is um, Death of a King by Tavis Smiley. Mm -hmm. And Death of the King by Tavis Smiley is one of the finest pieces I've read on Dr. King's life that wasn't just chronicling the history. It actually gave the emotion. And it talks about how the last year of Dr. King's life, he was literally depressed. He could not find peace anywhere. He was a depressed, probably clinically so. And a lot of wow. people don't realize that about him, that he was separated from his family a lot of times. Uh, he was concerned about, you know, them being attacked, whatever, because his house had been bombed and everything else. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a, a very depressed. And no matter where he went, he actually took refuge in the island where uh, Adam Clayton Powell was. And Powell just went after him. It's like, what are you doing with this nonviolent stuff? And you're ruining it. And he couldn't find any peace there. And then everywhere he went, people telling him what to do and how to do it. Mm. And so, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a tough spot. So um, uh, one thing that I do want to um, uh, highlight here is is something that's really not on, not what, well, ha hasn't traditionally been talked about was uh, King's philosophy uh, a shift near near the end of his life with uh, with uh, such things as like the poor people's campaign um, can mm -hmm. can you um, uh, uh, tell our audience um, about the uh, uh, 
Poor People's Campaign and this uh, shift that King experienced and the reason why? Well, you know, he, he, he was never, ever detached from the people. He always understood. I mean, Dr. King was someone that rolled up his sleeves, going to a pool hall and shoot pool. Uh, he went on to the college campuses. He was always up to date as to what people were thinking, this and that. He just simply had a philosophy and steps, by the way, connected to his philosophy that said, but this is how we can get there. Uh, as the more militant voices, you know, began to raise with Stokely, Carmichael and uh, Snick, uh, you know, you had the Black Panthers and others. Uh, he understood those brothers and sisters. Remember, there was Malcolm. There was this famous picture of him and Malcolm meeting. They were at polar opposites at that time. Mm. And Malcolm was extremely, uh, you know, anti, um, you know, our government and everything else was going on. And he felt like by any means necessary. The biggest shift came from Malcolm X, quite frankly, in terms of his philosophy mm -hmm. of things. A lot of people tend to forget that uh, Malcolm, after going to Mecca, actually became closer to King's philosophy than King did to his. And so what Dr. King understood was that you had to you had to demonstrate. You had to you had to take to the people, you know. So the poor people's campaign, he was talking about poor people. He wasn't just talking about um, you know, just African American people in our plight. He understood that. But he also understood that poverty was one of the great the three great evils of our of our time. Mm. And so the try to organize the poor people's campaign was to say that to the world, especially to the United States of America, you know, poverty is a problem. Poverty is a problem for everybody, you know, and especially for, uh, you know, people of color. Uh, so a lot of times people say he shifted. Well, he was never, uh, you know, so timid or anything like that. In fact, he said in his principles, you know, to be nonviolent is to be courageous. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to talk about how tough you are, be nonviolent, okay, mm -hmm. and let people come at you and spit at you and this and that, you know. Uh, so he never... He, he, he didn't shift as far as people think he did. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who probably got a chance to sit down and talk to him understood that he understood what it meant to fight. Uh, he simply thought that fighting was going directly to a person and confronting them with the truth. So one of the the, uh, the real stories they talk about is how he went to the White House and confronted uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. And Johnson, of course, you know, helped to usher in the Civil Rights Bill of 1964, I think it is, and all that. But Johnson hated King, or they say some people paint it that way. I can't say that to be you know true, but they said he would not really speak to King. King was always direct. Mm -hmm. King was always business minded. So what Johnson did was he talked directly to Jose Williams. Jose Williams was also from the South, but he wore the bib overalls and this and that. he knew how to smooth and talk to the you know to white power people. Whereas King was like, no, excuse me, I have a PhD. I went to Boston <laughs> University. I know how to talk to you too and we ain't talking all that jive <laughs> we getting down to business over here so he was not well liked because he was so focused and so business and uh and, and the powerful speaker you know one of the things that i remember there was a, a brilliant playwright who young lady young african-american female who did a piece and i think it was called mountaintop and angela bassett played the role and i remember being in new york watching this here and it talked about what may have happened in that room that night before he was assassinated before i had to make that speech Remember, Dr. King was, he was not feeling well the whole bit, but he said, I got to go because they wanted him, you know, they, uh, they were down in the um, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and, and there was just so much going on. And he said to them, he said, listen, he said, uh, we had some difficult days ahead. Mm. He said, but that really doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. And he said, also, I may not get there with you, but we as a people will get. He had a determination and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a foresight, I think, at that moment that we were all in danger, but we had to speak out. And I'm gonna say it again, that last year of his life, he was greatly depressed. 
He was depressed by so many things that were going on. He was being pushed and pulled and told that, you know, your, your movement is wrong. By the way, they took a poll of African-American people right before he was shot and killed, and mm -hmm. his popularity was in the toilet. Really? A lot of people who were, who, were, who were praising King now, back in the day, they thought he was uh, out of touch. They what? thought he was on the wrong side. They were listening to the more militant voices. I was 60, I would say, not 1969, I graduated from high school. And so I was uh, just turning uh, about 18. I was 18 when I graduated. So I was going to turn 19. My point being, I was on my way to college. I, you know, I was fully aware. And there was a question asked, which way black American? Dr. King stood fast. And listen, we, you know, we want to integrate. We want to just win that at, at the same time. This is how we must do it. Other people said, no, why we can't wait. Even he wrote a book said, why we can't wait. So <laughs> he, was, he was not so impatient that he was willing to give up his stance. Mm -hmm. And so he said, listen, by the way, we're all in this together. Let me make one of the, the different real quick here mm -hmm. uh, turn. You know, they shot and killed Fred Hampton. Yes. Fred Hampton was only 21 years old. Yes. And, and by the way, I had never heard a speech from Fred Hampton. I always heard about Fred Hampton. And then more recently, I've been, you know, privileged to hear some of his speeches and everything. What a brilliant guy he was. Mm -hmm. And he was doing exactly where Dr. King was on his way to. Dr. King had already been there. I take that back. He was trying to bring everybody together. Yes. But what made Fred so dangerous is that he was actually doing it by bringing some of those more militant, you know, whites who saw themselves as being almost like the skinhead of their time mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we're all just together. Why? Because of that poor people thing, because of the way the system's treating all of us. You know, they're calling us the N-word, but maybe you're the N-word too. Mm. And next thing you know, he was gathering up a coalition. So when they burst into that room at three or four o'clock in the morning and shot and killed Fred Hampton, they knew exactly what they were doing. And that's the reason why they had to kill King for the same reason. He had become a unifier. Mm -hmm. He began to make people understand, wait a minute, this isn't just about color. Because that was the bill of goods we were sold. So to have a poor people's campaign, not a poor black people's, not a poor, you know, people of color's campaign. He said, poor people's campaign. And it was led by black people, but it was bringing everybody up under that tent. And it was going to demonstrate it in D.C. so that everybody could see it, be, you know, put the big spotlight on it. Oh, this man got to go. And so that's exactly what happened. A lot of people still feel today that uh, James Earl Ray did not operate alone. Mm. There's no way he could have and this and that. And where were the police? And, you know, the whole thing was just set up in such a way. They say the same thing about Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. So did Dr. King um, move, you know, away from or did he change? I, I always question that. I say he he. He was who he was. Mm -hmm. It's just that he was a fighter, but he fought his own way. A lot of people that never did what he, had, what he did because they didn't have the guts to do it. I mean, to actually confront your enemy, actually. He, he didn't call Bull Connor names. You listen to our so-called politicians, today, even a former president. They used to calling people names and making fun of folks and saying, oh, God, you never heard King do that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. King talked about the issues, and he talked about racism, and he talked about things that we all could relate to. But he didn't just get on and say, Bull Connor's your whatever, whatever. He knew who Bull Connors was, but he confronted them. How many people go and stand and then mobilize people? By the way, King was greatly depressed also when uh, the young people stood up. So there's a wonderful video that you can get called the uh, Children's March. Mm -hmm. And I highly recommend that you get it. You get it through, um, the, what's the name of the organization? And, the, and if you have an organization, they'll give it to you for free. But anyhow, look at the Children's March, which is a great documentary. Dr. King was jailed. And he literally said to, you know, James Bevel and these other leaders, oh, don't do that. Don't don't use those kids. But those, those kids went out there. And if it had not been for those kids, you know, 
a lot of the folks and a lot of the movement would have just simply died because mm. a lot of the people were so afraid of losing their jobs and stuff. King understood that. So King spoke to the great issues of the time from, you know, militarism that he thought was a major problem to uh, poverty and also, you know, to racism. He thought those were the three big monsters that we were all facing and it affected all of us. Mm. You know, the, the persons who were perpetrating that stuff as well as the persons who were being the victims of it quote-unquote, we were all victims of it, he said. So, you know, that's that was the brilliance of Dr. King. He marched for everybody, even though he went directly to the African-American community. If you look at the March on Washington, you will see there were a lot of white folks mm -hmm. who were there with signs and marching a lot, you know, where most of us African-American, absolutely. But there were a whole bunch of white folks, a whole bunch of Asians, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Hispanics who showed up mm. and uh, who understood this was about the universal us and not just one segment. So that was the beauty and the, and the brilliance of Dr. King. So why he pushed so hard for that is because he understood poverty affects everybody. And and, and with this um, poverty message, why do you think that uh, uh, it's 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 now be becoming uh, um, talked about more with his legacy versus in in past past decades uh we're we're seeing now um documentaries uh, we're seeing uh, more discussion pieces on on the poor people's campaign whereas like when i was growing up you know i didn't hear about the poor people's campaign until i was a grad student at morgan state but mm -hmm. i could tell you the abcs of mlk growing up so why do you feel as though that uh this this poor people's campaign is now getting uh, the the deserved highlights it deserves. Well, you have more people telling the story. And mm -hmm. So you have more people of color telling the story. You know, they say there's a difference between uh, the lion who tells the story and the hunter who tells the story. Mm -hmm. So the hunter has a perspective and the hunter's telling what happened, but from his perspective or her perspective. And the lion's saying, wait a minute, <laughs> how was the prey? <laughs> Let me tell you what I saw. Mm -hmm. okay? And so part of what was happening was back in the day, uh, we had the black press as we talked about before those kind of being muted uh you had a lot of other voices coming out and the question was what were those voices let me just give you a quick example mm -hmm. um BET. BET was founded by an african-american gentleman uh you know robert johnson and uh he had a perspective perspective in mind to do something that would speak to but he quickly found out that a lot of what he hoped would sell wasn't being supported mm -hmm. so in order for him to get advertising and stuff like that he ended up with a whole bunch of videos and the rise of hip-hop and all that. Mm -hmm. On one hand, it's a good thing. We're celebrating 50 years of hip-hop. There's a lot of good that came out of that, you know, but also there was a lot of stuff. By the way, we didn't know about the Poor People's Campaign and so many other things. Why? Because we were too busy on this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was what I called the diversion. Okay. So it's not that we weren't still telling the story. The question was who was telling the story and why? And what was not being told? We have a gentleman by the name of Takashi Buford from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, he's, uh, you know, his parents were uh, African-American and uh, Japanese. His mother's Japanese. Takashi's an attorney. Takashi, you know, moved down to D.C. And then he had this epiphany and this idea. And he wanted to tell some hard-hitting uh, documentary stories about our history. And no one in Hollywood was, was you know, was touching him. But all mm -hmm. of a sudden, he came up with this idea called uh, Set It Off. And this was something he just kind of played with. Takashi's a brilliant guy. But mm -hmm. guess what sold in Hollywood? Set, Set It, it off. off. So cool. Then he wrote, uh, you know, uh, Booty Call and Pulse Party Three. The Kashi is much bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Now, none, no put down on any of that, but that wasn't telling you about the Poor People's Campaign, which he desired to talk about. Mm. But if you can't get the backing 
and Hollywood was constantly pushing that kind of stuff away or whoever, you know, obviously Hollywood is the general. But that's the same kind of thing was happening back in the day when you were coming along as opposed to, I was keenly aware of, uh, you know, the Poor People's Campaign and everything, but I was an avid reader of Ebony Magazine and mm -hmm. the Black Press, uh, even Jet, you know, would tell you stuff that's going on. All of that stuff began to come down. And um, how many times, when was the last time you seen Ebony Magazine? It doesn't even, they're not even printing right now. When was the last yeah. time you picked up a black newspaper unless you're in a, a city that has one? Uh, you know, it's just, yeah. And so there was so much commercialization of, of and telling of our story from a particular lens, you know, the music and the hip hop and all that, uh, you know, poetry began to rise. Mm. And then next thing you know, the black poet like myself, uh, you know, our voices became sort of like, eh, that's just the same old story. People kind of got tired of it. They didn't want to hear it, you know, uh, through our through our medium. So there's a lot that happens, man. A lot of times uh, it's our fault in the sense that we need to be more militant and more, uh, you know, more determined and persistent to tell our story mm. the way it should be told and uh, not just give up and go in that direction that's the most popular to make that money. And so um, one, one of the stories about Dr. King also is that when he died, he was not a rich man at all. He won the Nobel Prize, which gave him money. He could go speak anywhere and make speeches and make money. Dr. King almost gave everything away. In fact, mm. one of his biggest, if not his biggest benefactor was Aretha Franklin. Oh, Aretha wow. Franklin gave more, oh yeah, Aretha Franklin gave more money to the civil rights movement than anybody, from what I was uh, told. And if you watch her funeral, which was a brilliant, long funeral until it got to the preacher, I'll leave that alone. <laughs> but anyhow, um, you know, really, she gave monies like crazy to the funeral and uh, constantly asked Dr. King, what is it that you need? If it wasn't for her, you know, she, he would not have been able to travel the way he traveled and do some of the things that they were able to do. So, uh, you know, wow. that's often Franklin. Oh, yeah. Wow, I was I, I I was today years old, and uh, our guest today is Mr. Nathaniel Gadsden. Again, um, giving us all this uh good information on the things we knew, the things we didn't know, and uh, the things we did not know existed about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, so uh, you. And your wife, uh, you have a uh, unique c connection and, and involvement with um, the Dr. King and his family, correct? You know, it's interesting. Yeah, I uh, went. I'm a graduate of Westchester uh, State College back in the day, and I will tell you that I had a unique opportunity to introduce uh, Coretta Scott King when she came to our campus. And um, wow. my one, our Black History professor at that time was uh, Dr. Barbara Black. And so she said to me one day, she said, you know, we're bringing Credit Scott King to Cal. Oh, wonderful. And she asked me if I'd do the honors of introducing her. And I said, sure. And then she revealed to me that Dr., uh, I think her name was Barbara Ferris, happened to be Martin Luther King's sister. And Martin Luther King's sister taught at Cheney uh, State College back in the day. And then she just recently passed this year, I believe. Mm. But anyhow, Dr. Ferris uh, was only about three miles, uh, Cheney's only three miles away from uh, Westchester, and so she would come up and visit with her her sister-in-law quite a bit, but you didn't know. So we had a basketball game. Uh, Westchester's playing Cheney, and Cheney's an all-African-American school, if people don't know, one of the oldest, if not the oldest, African-American school in the country. And so all of a sudden, the doors open, and then walks the King family, totally unannounced. Wow. She had come up to see her, and that's when her kids were just little small kids. And they come in, and Doc and uh, Coretta Scott King literally sat directly behind me, and we're sitting on bleachers now, 
the whole gym stop, the game stops. Everybody stands, everybody's applauding. It's like, oh, you know, mm. and it is. It was just quite shocking. It's like the King family, you know, my first time seeing them in person. And they come up and they sit down behind us. Wow. And her knees are literally touching my back. If I lean back, I'm, <laughs> you know. And so everyone's, you know, trying to, and people want her autograph open. And she's, oh, no, come on, we're to watch the game. And again, her kids are small. So that was my first encounter. Then I ended up, you know, having an opportunity to introduce her. I went to um, Atlanta for the first time. And I was at a conference and me and this guy hooked up. We just started talking about history and everything. I said, man, look, uh, you know, I'm going over to the church, man, Sunday, you know, hey, they, you know. So he said, man, I'll go with you. So we rented a car, literally, jumped up and we go over to. And so um, one of the other things about this whole trip is that it was maybe a month before or two months before uh, Martin Luther King's mother was shot and killed in the church. Mm. I don't know if a lot of people remember that. She was the organ player. Or, uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, and this uh, a white guy comes in, and he's sitting amongst the audience like everybody else, and all of a sudden he stands up and just starts shooting. Wow! And one of the bullets hit Martin Luther King's mother in the head, and she died uh, right there in Sunday service. That's a, a story that most people never even hear about. Yeah. But anyhow, yeah, so we go down maybe a month or two months later, and I remember there were two guys distinctly stand, standing at the at the front, uh, you know, door there, and a lot of people coming in from all over the world really because anybody visiting there you know they want to go to the church and so we go in and uh the place is packed and the gentleman says to me he says listen you guys are gonna have to go downstairs uh there's no room in the sanctuary but they do have tv monitors downstairs and i said okay thank you know but as i turn and the uh, big old car pulls up you know and who's stepping out of the car but credit scott king mm. and so i said to my buddy I said that's credit scott king so we stood there and so as she begins to come up the steps, she literally stops and she sees us standing there at the door, you know, standing back, like, you know, near the sanctuary. But she kind of stops because they've already had a shooting there and everything. So the two gentlemen turned around. They look like deacons, but both of them pulled the coats back and they had badges and guns. And they said, gentlemen, do we have a problem? And I said, uh, no, I said, uh, Mrs. King, uh, Dr. Barbara Black from Westchester told me to tell you hello if I see you. She said, Barbara Black? I said, yeah, I said, Dr. She said, how do you know Dr. Barbara Black? I said, she's my professor, you know. So anyhow, to make a long story short, um, she comes in, takes me by the arm, takes another gentleman by the arm, and she says, so where are you boys from? And she talks to us. She goes <laughs> downstairs with us. Down there, already have her space up front, of course. And she's Greta Scott King. She goes downstairs with us, sits in the basement with us, and talks to us with anywhere from 15 minutes to half an hour, just talking about everything. And then she thanks us for coming and this and that, and then she goes upstairs. Wow. I didn't wash my arm for 40 years. <laughs> I was walking around like this. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it was an incredible time. And then, uh, of course, you know, uh, there were other times. But my wife and I both also, in the 90s, we went through what's called the Martin Luther King Leadership Institute. Mm. And so uh, we had it here in Harrisburg. We took a group of young people and immersed them into, you know, that first we were trained ourselves and then we worked with them and uh, we went down to Millersville University and different places, taking these kids around. And the idea was to bring black, white, Hispanic kids, everybody together and teach them about the King's principles. Mm. And um, so we did that. And then my wife and I were able to go down to D.C. We're both trainers. And we went down to D.C. and we were part of the National Martin Luther King Leadership Institute, whatever. And we were presenters at that conference and the King family was there. Fast forward, uh, probably about mm, maybe 10 years ago. Um, my wife got a chance to meet the oldest daughter first, who has since died now. Mm. Um, oh boy. But anyhow, Bernice King, who was just here in Harrisburg, uh, at one of the colleges close by. Anyhow, my wife created the Credit Scott King um, 
dinner. I, I'm just gonna call it. She has a magazine. My wife had a magazine for a long time, and on the front cover of the magazine was credit, you know, Credit Scott King. And then we had this big dinner down at Hershey, mm-hmm. Motor Lodge, and it was huge. And the main speaker was um, Bernice King, mm-hmm. you know, Doctor Bernice King. So she brought her in, and we got a chance to interface with her and all that kind of good stuff. So anyhow, we've had a lot of involvement uh, with the King family over the years in different ways. And both of us are, like I said, graduates of the Martin Luther King Leadership Institute. And now uh, I'm on the board of directors. In fact, we're just starting on uh, June the 19th will be our first class of our new cohort. And we usually graduate anywhere between 20 to 25 people. And I'm talking about college presidents, uh, police officers, Hmm. teachers, you know, housewives, just anybody that is really, really interested in being a part of uh, this institute and to learn how to be a more effective leader using King's principles. That's what we do. I'm always the opening speaker, one of the opening speakers, and I teach the uh, six steps and six, six principles of Dr. Martin Luther King at, at our first session for all of those. So so then um, uh, in in 2024, uh, where do you believe uh, Dr. King legacy stands? Well, you know, I believe it's, we're having a resurgence. I believe more and more people are understanding uh, you know, the power of Dr. King's words, uh, his actions, uh, what he stood for the whole bit. We've seen enough violence now to understand maybe he's right, you know. Mm. Uh, there's still some people who are going to always, you know, be out there pushing a more aggressive, violent kind of a stance. <clears throat> but Dr. King was, um, he was he was literally there for everybody. Uh, he understood the context, <clears throat> excuse me, of racism and why racism was so pervasive. And it was really about power and uh, how they tried to just, you know, make us into inanimate objects, if not animals and all that kind of stuff. But he also tried to prove them wrong by his scholarship, the way he carried himself, by his confrontational skills. He had direct confrontation, but also by his ability to try to understand uh, all sides. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he, he tried to understand the racists and tried to understand. In fact, that was one of the things he demanded in his principles and steps is to sit down, listen, know what their argument is, know mm-hmm. what they're trying to say. And also understand they come from context. So, for example, we have a number of people now who used to be skinheads or, or Klansmen or whatever who have now seen the error of their ways, and they're going all over the country preaching against this stuff, telling you the inside story, mm-hmm. how they were indoctrinated and this and that. That's all Dr. King was really asking for was, you know, for people to listen, to be rational. You know, why always throw a Molotov cocktail or, or this guy? Yeah, they are beating us and they are killing us. We got to expose them. And we got to, you know, do what the Black Lives Matter has done so well mm. on one hand, but then they did not do the organizing part, my, my words, mm-hmm. on the other hand. So, for example, back in the day, I knew that I could go to an NAACP meeting and see power there. You know, people mm-hmm. always want to, I was one of those people as a young person. I didn't know anything about NAACP, so I just thought they weren't doing nothing. Oh, they ain't got nothing. You know, and I would get up and make a speech in a minute about something. Didn't know what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dr. King said, know what you're talking about, okay? Do your research. Make sure that you have, you know, before you get up and jump on that platform that all of us want to do, you know, we jump on that platform, but we have to do our research. Mm-hmm. So when I really understood the power and the reach and the impact of a SCLC, uh, you know, uh, Urban League, uh, NACP, all that kind of stuff, I became, I was embarrassed because I had no idea the power and the fight and everything else that was involved in this and what they were able to accomplish. Uh, it's not always the person out there with the big bow on and running their mouths about everything. Sometimes that's the last thing you need to do. Uh, but anyhow, uh, he was very patient. Uh, he was very kind, but he also understood the danger of it all. Mm. And that's why he was so depressed. 
because so many people did not understand and they were calling you names and saying all kinds of stuff and they just stopped listening and it became so emotional. When Dr. King was shot and killed back in 19, uh, April the 4th, 1968, I was living on Fifth Street here in Harrisburg and I'll never forget hearing glass break immediately. Mm. I just come from, I was a track man and basketball and all that stuff. And I just come from the high school and my brother hollered, hey, did you hear the news? He's upstairs and he said, uh, oh, did you hear? I said, what? He said, Dr. King was shot. I said, you gotta be, what? And then we're all running to the TVs trying to, you know. And so before I knew it, they announced that Dr. King had died. You know, mm. Walter Cronk, uh, no, it wasn't him. But anyhow, uh, someone announced it and I'll never forget just the silence. And then all of a sudden, you just hear glass breaking. And all up and down our street, uh, I'm, I'm not going to call this one guy's name. He's a good dude. But I just remember him throwing bricks through people's windows and mm. calling out white people and all that kind of stuff. And everybody was like, no, no, that's not the And of course, you know, there was a lot of rioting that took place all over the country. Mm. A lot of anger, a lot of stuff. And then people began to question, well, wait a minute. Now, Dr. King stood for something totally different than this. Why are we doing this? And a lot of cities got burnt down, gave... Um, you know, just and I just remember watching the game show as a young person, and all of a sudden they stopped the game show and started talking about what was happening in the country, and it's like what you know, and the folks were talking as if we were just animals and running amok and you know, the, but then Dr. King's words began to be you know, I started quoting him mm. and talking about you know, and then that letter from a Birmingham jail became more people began to read that more. It's like what was he saying? to the clergy, because where does the church really stand in all this? And, um, you know, there are a lot of clergymen, a lot of people who just simply were afraid to confront the system. Confront. And that whole movie, that uh, I forget the name of it, but then the guy said, you can't handle the truth. But I heard oh, yeah. years later, I remember thinking, yeah, go ahead, King. That 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 was literally in his his uh, spirit because he wanted people to handle the truth. Mm. They Poverty, there was a lot of truth about poverty that we were not willing to face. Why? Because we live in a, a country where, you know, I mean, the, the wealth is just immense, but who has the wealth? And why don't more of that trickle down? Remember that trickle down theory stuff? Mm -hmm. So he was confronting all of that stuff. Uh, why did he, why, he said very famously that the most segregated hour in all of America was 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, because oh, yeah. that's when most of the churches were separated. So he said things, uh, most with other people, of course, that uh, just made you think. And that's what he wanted us to do was to think and to confront the evil that lived within us and among us and stopped the nonsense of uh, using, you know, very cliche kind of, uh, you know, talk to justify something that's just not justifiable. The poverty in this country was not justifiable. Whether mm -hmm. the military was being used to go and destabilize other countries and stuff like that and to move into Vietnam. He spoke out against Vietnam. Why are we doing this? What, you know, what was that all about? What well, they said was the spread of communism and all that stuff. But then they said, we lost the war. Well, wait a minute, did communism spread? What happened here? There's just a whole bunch of stuff that, you know, we were um, accepting, you know, as quote unquote, the one book said, the ugly American, uh, and not uh, doing anything about it. Uh, and then to have that, you know, that Tallahatchie, uh, you know, river, come on, and to have all those bodies pulled up. Yeah, you know, of course, he's a human being. He's not walking around insensitive to that kind of stuff. He knew yeah. what that was all about. He lived it. And so many of us in the North who jumped on buses and came down, I'll never forget watching the one documentary where there were a lot of African-Americans who were angry with the whites who came down as uh, they were all on the bus together. But he said someone was so cavalier and this and that. And he said, and this one white girl in particular, I'm just to quote this one African-American guy who saw himself as a freedom rider, you know, but he was so upset with this one white girl, she was just talking to him. He said, but then at the end of the day, he looked up, she was the one knocking on the doors. 
she was the one who was going into the homes and sitting down with these, uh, you know, uh, illiterate African-American people who were afraid mm -hmm. to vote, who didn't know that they could. And she was the one who put herself in harm's way in proximity. He said, wait a minute. And he had a whole new respect. And I'm just, you know, quote this from a book that I read mm -hmm. of how, you know, we got to stop judging each other so harshly. He mm -hmm. said, it's one, one thing to talk about. It's another thing to do it. He said, when I looked at this young white girl who was college educated, who had never done anything like this in life, but she put herself in harm's way and she understood the danger, so she protected herself. But at the same time, she went unafraid and she did what she had to do. He said, I would have judged her and looked at her. Well, that was King's point. Let's stop judging each other. And by the way, let's confront each other and let's tell the truth. And I can't understand your truth if I've never talked to you. Mm. I would never heard you tell me what your truth is. So Dr. King was all about telling the truth and confronting and about business. He liked to laugh. They said he was a great joke teller. Tell he liked to laugh and this and that. He said, but when it came down to business, he was about business. And a lot of these guys went to shucking jobs and all that kind of stuff. He said, why? You know, now why? Mm -hmm. So, you know, part of what they teach you in the Leadership Development Institute is to be a leader. And to be a leader is to know, first of all, what the issues are. So you have to be educated. Uh, to have courage, that's another thing we talk about. And then also to not have motive. Uh, very quickly, I know I'm kind of rambling here, but no, yeah, I remember sitting with a group of people that I truly admire, and we had uh, lost the voice, and I just say it that way because I don't want to, you know, anybody knows what I'm talking about, you know. But, um, and the voice was a major media outlet, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. And so we went, you know, to say, hey, listen, you know, large segment of our community, the African-American community in particular, we've lost a major voice here, and, and now they've changed the format on us and this and that. And the question became amongst all of us, where's the ownership? Why don't we own these things? Mm. You know, what's going on here? The other thing is, how do we approach this? What do we do? What we did not know, and um, this happens way too often, is that a few amongst us had ulterior motives. Mm. So if I go in and I have the motive of wanting to get this for myself or how can I make money off of this, then that has nothing to do with freedom and, yeah. and you know, being equal for everybody. And that's what you find sometimes. You find that people are easily bought off. Mm. And so there are people who say, man, look, man, here's what I'll do. And they make these little side deals and all that kind of stuff. We watched it. And, man, I could go on and on and on about that. Mm. So Dr. King was opposed to that kind of thinking. He wanted people to have a Christian, uh, you know, he was a Christian minister, of course. So he wanted them to have a moral compass. Mm -hmm. He wanted them to be serious about the issues for everybody. He could have went out there and made tons of money just making speeches. Uh, one of the great stories from the civil rights movement is how Julian Bond lost to, uh, you know, John Lewis, because John Lewis uh, didn't want to do it. But John Lewis stood up one day doing one of their great debates, so to speak. And he said, I'm going to show you some pictures. John Lewis had walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and got beaten in the head. Mm -hmm. John Lewis had put himself in many different He said, uh, show us your pictures, Julian. Mm. Show us when you were on the front lines, Julian. Julian, you grew up. With, on the college campus. You grew up with your father being this and that. He said, you're very articulate. He said, but show me where you were on the front lines of the movement. I can show you King where King was. Mm. King was always in the suit. And King had on his, you know, his shirt at times and his uh, khaki overalls. But that was very rare. When you saw King, you tried to be, hey, you know. But at the same time, he was on those front lines. Mm. You know, marching. He said, Julian, show me your pictures. And the audience caught it immediately. Mm. It's not that Julian wasn't a very articulate fighter for civil rights, but there's a certain way you fight, you know, and you can't fight if you're not willing to get out there and actually confront. And King was confront peaceful. Uh, I'll just call it peaceful confrontation. 
The other thing was King always knew the, the direction he was trying to go in. The end of the day for King was uh, the establishment of the beloved community. Mm. So he did not want just equality for that person. That, he wanted equality for all people. And he was trying to establish the beloved community. So I can't do that if I'm willing to stand up and tear you down and call you all kinds of names and all that kind of stuff. You know, no, I can't do that because I'm not representing the God that I, I profess that I know. And that's what King always stood on. So he was trying to take the church to the people and the people to the church. And once he understood that and, and was willing to fight on that plane, with that kind of understand, that kind of power, he, he could not be deterred. So he got depressed because so many people were turning against him and all that kind of stuff. And he, of course, he wanted to be with his family. Of course, he wanted to, you know, but at the same time, he had a big fight, man. God had put something on him. It was, you know, to whom much is given, much is, uh, you know, much is required. And King mm -hmm. had a voice that gave him a platform. When he spoke, people listened. Yeah. And he was a brilliant orator. So he's had this burden of being, quote, unquote, the leader. And he was. People saw him as the leader. But then people wanted to, you know, people build you up and then tear you down. down. Yeah. And he learned that 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 very quickly. And, and then... Um, you know, from 26 to 39, he and, and Malcolm X both were assassinated at the age of 39. Mm. Uh, you know, again, I go back to Fred Hampton, age of 21. You can go on down the line. So many voices are being silenced. And um, and King had the opportunity to simply say, you know what? This ain't worth it. I'm going to be over here with my family. I'm going to go teach on the college campus somewhere. But he somehow he had that calling on him that just would not allow him to do that. Mm. And so God mm. bless him. Mr. Gaston, I want to uh, thank you for coming on the Spark and, and, and giving all of this information on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, uh, uh, again, you gave us stuff that we uh, didn't know existed. You gave us stuff that we wanted and you gave us stuff that we needed. Uh, so, again, I want to thank you uh, for joining us. Brother Marquis, thank you so much, man. You have, hey, listen. You have a great spirit, man. It's my first time really meeting you and stuff, but I hope you keep on doing what you're doing. We yep. need you, man. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Will do. Well, that concludes episode 50, and that concludes season one of The Melanin Report. I want to thank you for tuning in again and, and rocking out with me over these last couple of months as I gave you the things you needed, gave you the things you wanted, and gave you the things that you did not know existed. This has been one heck of a exciting ride i want to thank dr kamika campbell for giving us the mondays that we did not deserve from her uh, so want to uh thank her she definitely 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 helped enrich this program um i want to give a a special uh shout out to to our vp uh here at wytf uh fred vengeant uh who gave me the opportunity to give you all the melanin report and without his thumbs up or thumbs down uh this thing does not happen uh without that thumbs up so want to give a special shout out to fred for giving me this opportunity and and then i want to give a shout out to you the listener for tuning in and rocking out with your boy uh for these past couple months like i said this has been both insightful and delightful and i'm looking forward to season two season two we're going to get more melanated and more reported uh and more the <laughs> so until we cross those burning sands into season two enjoy season one re-listen to episodes share with a friend and make sure that you do not the 
melanin report alone. For the last time, I am Marquise Lupton. This is the Melanin Report. Trust your dopeness, and I'll see you in season two. Now enjoy these sounds from our local artists. Action. 